So last week we finished up chapter 14, which was Paul's instruction concerning um, proper order in the church, and especially when tongues and prophecy are involved. And, and then we also read Paul's instruction, you know, mandating that men are to be the spiritual leaders and, or the teachers in the church for corporate worship. And then lastly, we, looked, we read that the goal for utilizing spiritual gifts in the church is for edification and, and that everything should be done decently in order you know, for that to happen. So this week we're going to look at chapter 15, 1 Corinthians 15, which is devoted entirely to the resurrection of Christ as well as the resurrection of the dead. And, and this particular section in, in Scripture gives us the most extensive treatment of the resurrection in all of Scripture. So I hope that we learn much about the resurrection of Christ uh, today and in, and in the, the coming week, and so uh, we'll gain much hope and peace as we walk through it, in, you know, in some detail. So this is an important chapter. So um, we're gonna. I, I would have loved to have just blew through this chapter and continued on, but it's, this is there's two. It's too important. So um, it is. And the resurrection of Christ is important. It's so important, in fact, that without it, there is no gospel. Think about that. Without the resurrection of Christ, there is no gospel. The, one commentator said that the resurrection of Christ is the hinge upon which the gospel turns. The hinge upon which the gospel turns. Without the resurrection of Christ, there is no resurrection of the dead. And without the resurrection of Christ, we have no hope of being resurrected. If you think about it, without the resurrection of Christ, even Scripture is not to be trusted. Because Scripture speaks of the resurrection numerous times so once we learn about and once we understand the, this resurrection of Christ uh, it's also critically important that we believe it it's one thing to know something happened it's another thing to actually believe that it happened in our, in our hearts and if we don't personally believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ salvation is impossible but think about that if you don't believe that Christ was actually resurrected, if you don't believe in the historic Jesus Christ, if you don't believe He was resurrected, you do not have faith. Now think about that for a minute. That's how important the resurrection is. Salvation is impossible. It's a crucial doctrine. It must be understood and personally believed in order for us to take part in the heavenly kingdom. Consider Christ's own words in John chapter 11, verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection... Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Wow. That's an important question that Jesus is asking, isn't it? Romans 10, verse 9. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Anybody know the rest of that? And believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. And believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. And as we'll see a little bit later, Paul, when he's talking to the Corinthians, that he tells them that without the resurrection, we are indeed of all men most to be pitied. In verse 19 of this chapter, he says, if we have hoped in Christ only in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. So, I hope I've given you enough evidence to see that the resurrection is important. We need to understand the resurrection and we need to believe the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as we go along in chapter 15, we'll understand that Paul here is not, 
correcting the Corinthians' own error, the error concerning the doctrine of the resurrection, for they believed in the resurrection of Christ. But they were concerned about their own resurrection. They had some uh, error going on there. But So it's their belief in their re own resurrection that Paul begins to correct. But he starts off with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so let's start this morning by reading the first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 1. Now I make known to you, brothers and sisters, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, and in which you also stand by which you also are saved, if you hold firmly to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I handed down to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to twelve, and after that He appeared to more than five hundred brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom remain until now but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach... And so you believed. So I think here we have a, the most concise and still detailed explanation of the sacrificial death and the resurrection of Christ. You know, and I think it's important that Paul mentions several times, he mentions that phrase, according to the Scriptures. According to the Scriptures, Paul mentions. And Jesus Christ, His sacrificial death on the cross was prophesied many times in both the Old and the New Testament. And by reminding the Jews and, and the Gentiles of this fact gives yet another proof of the trustworthiness of the Scriptures and ultimately of, of God Himself because what God says He will do. Paul first, he calls them in verse 1, he calls them brothers and sisters. And, and I think he's using that phrase to show their common relationship in Christ and with each other and with Himself. And that's important because as we see, we'll see a little bit later, you know, Christ was the first fruits of those who were resurrected but there'll be others and so Paul ties these brothers and sisters in Corinth, uh, Corinth to, to Jesus Christ and to himself and to each other he shows them that that common brothers and sisters and I do want to make mention of, of a phrase that's, that's found in verse 2 he says if you hold firmly to the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain now Paul's not teaching that your salvation can be lost. He's teaching instead that faith, true faith in Jesus Christ will persevere. True faith in Christ will persevere. You know, as, as we studied in Romans and as we've heard so many times from Patrick, you know, people like to quote Romans eight twenty eight, right? But sometimes they stop. They don't continue on, right? But let's continue on, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to, become, to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Those whom Jesus called, he finishes the work, doesn't he? He doesn't just start the process and then leave it up to you to carry on. 
go and be filled, right? That's not what God does here. He doesn't start the process and, and leave it up to us to complete that process or to keep our saving grace as the Roman Catholics would teach. Instead, he's, he does it all. It's all of God and nothing of us. It's Christ that holds on to us, not us holding on to Christ. And I'm reminded so many times of the parables that Jesus used to teach that, to differentiate between those who profess faith and those who possess faith. Okay, We can all profess to, for whatever we want to. Hey, do you know I'm a medical doctor? No, you're not. <laughs> right? Who's going to come to me for surgery? Nobody, if you're wise. Right? So I can say anything, but if I possess that medical training and that diploma that says I've done well, then that's another thing. You know, we have the sower who sowed seeds upon the shallow or the, or the weedy ground, houses that are built upon shaky foundations which don't weather the storm of life and the trials, tares being sown among the wheat, Virgins without oil for their lamps. Even the paths that are flat, nice, easy, but have a wide gate that leads to destruction. A saving and a persevering faith is different than those. That persevering faith, it's not worked up from our own emotional depths and they're generated from our minds. That gift of faith is truly a gift from God Himself. You know, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, everybody's familiar with that. For by grace have you been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, right? It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So that persevering faith. And so I wanted to make sure I, that I, I walked you through that because when Paul says, if you hold firmly to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, he's not saying that you need to hold on to Christ. But if you truly believe, if you have the faith to believe, then truly you are saved. You will persevere to the end. You know, that gift that God gives us, that gift of faith, it's, it brings with it several things. It brings with it repentance for our sins, our past sins. And, and it brings with it a love for God and a, and a hatred for, and deliverance even from sin. So think about those things. You know, it's the difference between those who continue in faith and those who fall away. The difference is those who fall away were never really redeemed in, in the first place. So that false faith that Paul mentions here, lest you fall away, lest you are not saved because you didn't continue in it, that false faith which only follows Christ you know, is like the faith of the demons. Because you know, either the devils believe and tremble, but would anybody think that they have saving faith? James 2.19, you believe that God is one. Well, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder, but what salvation they have, none. You think about the ones who followed Christ only for the benefits that Christ brought to them. Think about those um, that we read not too long ago in, in one of Patrick's sermons about the food that he provided in the wilderness. John 6.26, Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate some of the loaves and were filled. They were looking for a handout, right? They were just looking, they were following Christ, all right, to get bread. I mean, if you go to the park and you're feeding pigeons, yeah, they'll follow you. Try and pick one up or pet it, right? They're not yours, right? But yet they were following Christ, but only for the bread. And he tells them a little bit later on in verse 29, this is the work of God. You need to believe in him whom he has sent. 
believe in Him whom He has sent. Second Thessalonians tells us that you know not all people have true faith in God. That in chapter three, verse one. Finally, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the word of the Lord will be spread rapidly and be glorified, just as it was also with you, and that we will be rescued from evil and troublesome people. For not all have faith. Not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful and He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you are doing and will do what we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the perseverance of Christ. But not all have faith. Not all have this gift of faith. Now, Paul also talks about the gospel messages being of first importance in, in verse 3. And, and sometimes I just I marvel at Paul's, uh, at his duty and his privilege to take the gospel, you know, primarily to the Gentiles, but also to the, to the Jews. But what gives me the greatest thrill when I think about Paul, and I, I don't know why I've never thought about this before, Paul did not take the Old Testament and discern the gospel message from the Old Testament. But now think about that. Let that sink in just for a minute. So, you know, we, we can read in today's and we can read, oh, yeah, that's talking about the Messiah coming. This is, oh, yeah, here's Jesus. Genesis 3, and we, we read, yeah, that points toward Christ. And it's easy to do that, isn't it? Somewhat, right? Paul didn't do that. He didn't take the Old Testament to discern the gospel and how Jesus Christ fit into that overall scheme. But God himself, through the work of the Holy Spirit, spoke the gospel directly to Paul. Think about that. How could Paul be so sure in what he writes and in the doctrine that he teaches? Well, he had a good teacher, didn't he? God spoke to him. Direct revelation from God. And I, and I think about that. You know, how much greater confirmation would you need to see that Paul was not just a wise teacher, or smart or intelligent or well-read, but he was actually a spokesman for God. Now, I'm not saying that you know the Old Testament that we that you don't see that in there, but the Old Testament does confirm and points to Christ as being the the anointed one. But it's it's always in shadows and images. You know, it's not really clearly pointed out such that. You, we could get all the details from the Old Testament as easily as we have it in the New. But Paul, however, had that direct revelation from God. And I can only imagine Paul's his joy as he read through the Old Testament scriptures after having been redeemed. Paul knew the scriptures. But now think about it. God appeared to him on the road to Damascus and enlightened him, right? gave him new life in Christ, and was speaking to him concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ and expounded to him perfectly the gospel message. Now, can you imagine Paul reading through the Old Testament now and seeing these things? And it's like, I mean, how, I mean, to me that would be, you know, unspeakable that he would have been blessed with that revelation. And see, he had to see Christ in the Old Testament so clearly now and he remembered those passages that foretold of that coming Messiah you know just as Jesus spoke to those traveling to Emmaus when he was explaining to them about his death and his resurrection you know I can imagine Paul's enlightenment let me read that passage for you in Luke 24 starting verse 25 
Then he spoke to them, this is Jesus, and then he said to them, You foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, Old Testament. Verse 26, Was it not necessary for Christ to suffer these things and to come into his glory? And then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things written about himself and all the scriptures. Jesus Christ explaining to the travelers about himself from the Old Testament. Continue on in verse 31. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, and this is what I think about Paul. Here's what they said one to another. Were our hearts not burning within us when he was speaking to us on the road? While he was explaining the scriptures to us? And they got up that very hour, returned to Jerusalem, found the eleven gathered together and those were with them saying, The Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. And they began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them at the breaking of bread. Now think about that. Why am I using some of these scriptures? Well, we're talking about the resurrection today. But I also wanted to, to, to give you a little bit of insight into Paul and how he's so firm in his belief. Some of the old, many places in the Old Testament scripture you know, that foretold of Christ's resurrection, Genesis 22, 8. 14, Psalm 16, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, Hosea. There's tons in, in Scripture. But think about those things. Think about the Old Testament Scriptures that Jesus is, is relating to these. And then think about Paul as he got direct revelation from God d- detailing the gospel message. You know, how would you like to show up for Sunday school tomorrow and Jesus Christ himself teach Sunday school? Would that not thrill you to the core? Would that not strengthen your faith? Would it? Raise your hand if you think it would. Guess what? (laughs) That's kind of a trick question. God's words right here. Okay? So, read your scriptures. Okay. So, what makes the resurrection so important? And why am I harping on that this morning? Is that, well, without the resurrection, we serve a dead God. We could just as easily serve Muhammad or some other dead prophet. Okay? And billions do. Millions and millions and millions do. They serve these dead gods and continue to. And they're willing to give up their lives to serve these dead prophets. But yet we have the true and living God. You know, the resurrection is so important because it validates that Jesus Christ was who he said he was, that he was the Son of God. He did live a perfect life. He did suffer on the cross for our sins. Sins that did not belong to Him, He still suffered for them. But He was raised up by God who was satisfied with that work and the suffering of His Son. So we instead, we serve a risen Savior, one who has demonstrated His power over death, hell, and the grave. He is the first fruits of all those who will ultimately be resurrected in their glorified bodies. So we serve a risen Savior and not a dead prophet. Okay. Any questions? We serve a risen Savior. Verse 5. How do we know? Well, we have eyewitnesses. Verse 5 says, And that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. And after that he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Remember, that's fallen asleep is Paul's you know, w- words for some who have died that were in Christ. They've just fallen asleep. Verse 7, 
Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Christ's resurrected body was seen by many of his followers. And he appeared first to Peter, who had only recently denied him. Denied even knowing him. You know, and, and I wonder why was that first? Maybe it was to strengthen Peter's faith and to show forth, to demonstrate Jesus' forgiveness. Peter had a lot of work yet to do, and so I think maybe that was one of the reasons. It says, Then Christ appeared to the twelve, which actually eleven since Judas had, been had not been replaced yet. And then it says, Five hundred other brothers and sisters, followed by James and the apostles. And, and, uh, and then years later, 18 months, two years later, he appeared to, to Saul himself. And then Jesus continued to show himself to his followers, followers for 40 days after his resurre resurrection, appearing at least three times to his disciples. In John 21, verse 13, it mentions Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and the fish likewise. Now this was the third time that Jesus revealed himself to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Another thing different about Paul. Paul's vision of the risen Lord was a little bit different as Christ revealed himself to Paul, not after his resurrection, but actually after his ascension. Now think about that. It's different. Paul, was he, he saw the risen Lord after his ascension as he traveled on the road to Damascus. In Acts chapter 9 we read that Paul, excuse me, now Saul, still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, whether men or women, he might bring them in shackles to Jerusalem. And now as he was traveling, it appeared that, that he was approaching Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And he continues on, Get up, enter the city, I'll tell you what to do. But I think... Paul's reference here back in Corinthians, verse 7, chapter 15, he refers to himself as one untimely born. I think that has significance because Paul's vision came so much later than the other apostles and the other people that saw the resurrected Christ. It came so much later. Paul was born later. He was brought into the fold later. And that phrase, usually when it's used untimely born, it usually refers to a birth that's either a an abortion or a pre-birth, stillbirth or um, miscarriage, something that would not allow life. And, you know, maybe this phrase was used by Paul to indicate his spiritual standing when Christ appeared to him. He was in, you know, indeed spiritually dead and without life, and he was entirely hostile to Jesus Christ and, and those who profess faith in Jesus Christ, according to the way Paul calls it, Saul calls it. But these next few verses that we read in Corinthians 15, starting in verse 9, these next few verses, it seems to indicate Paul's changed life and his humble appraisal of himself and his worthiness, or should we say unworthiness, to be an apostle. You know, Paul was transformed you know, from that arrogant Saul into a humble Paul. And one was dead and useless for the kingdom, the arrogant Saul, and one was useful, was alive 
and useful to God. That's Paul. So what does Paul say? Verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am. And His grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. So Paul, even though he was used by God to pen most of the New Testament and deliver crucial doctors to the church and you know, without those writings, the church of God would be, would suffered. This same Paul was not proud as his past life as Saul was. He was not proud and arrogant. You know, he didn't even consider himself something special. You know, I'm the one to lead this spiritual quest. You Corinthians, pay attention. He didn't say that. He considered himself unworthy and unfit even to be an apostle. He recognized his persecution of the church of God as something which, which he should have been rejected by God and judged and, and sent to hell and punished forever, just like the rest of us. And he recognized that in his life, and so he realized that the grace of God had been shown to him. So it was not Paul's education or his intelligence or his great leadership abilities instead that made the difference in Paul's life and, and that allowed God to use him in such a mighty way in the... Uh, in the scriptures to write uh, so many crucial doctrines for us to, to uh, present to us. But he saw it was the grace of God in his life. Now, I've got to touch on this. Somebody told me about the meme where Paul made a, Saul made a decision for Christ. And so, you know, do you think Paul made a decision for Christ on the road to Damascus? <laughs> huh? Do you think he... I think he made a decision for Christ or, you know, divided Jesus into his heart. God struck him blind and came down and basically took charge of his life. So I think about those things and, and uh, not to make light of, uh, you know, come as you are and, and, and some, of the, some of the more begging um, things where we plead with people to be saved. But this was not the instance here. And I think that God had a mission for Paul. Mission had been determined since the foundation of the world, just as he does for all of us. But for Paul, it had been determined from the foundation of the world, and he redeemed Paul in a manner that, that he deemed most fitting. Struck him blind, got his attention. And for that, for, and Paul saw his grace of God displayed in his own life. He knew what he deserved. You know, Paul is going to face tremendous persecutions, and, and, but he would also be used mightily by God. I think that Paul needed to see Christ at his conversion. Can you imagine how strong Paul's faith was? You know, we look at Peter and we say, now Peter, he was a go-getter. Peter denied Christ three times. But, you know, I don't think we ever have in Scripture where Paul denies Christ. Paul withstood tremendous amounts of persecution and continued to serve Christ, considering himself, you know, uh, unworthy to be an apostle counted all joy when you know he was beat for Christ's sake so I think that the grace that was shown to Paul by God was something foremost in Paul's mind even as he writes this letter to the Corinthians and as he ministered to them Paul could no doubt he was living proof that God's grace can reach the worst sinner right he considered himself the worst sinner 
So the lowest undeserving sinner could be used by God and, and put into service for the kingdom. And I think that's one of the reasons we see why Paul's his self-sacrificial service was so vividly captured in the scriptures. You know, we read about the many trials, the sufferings, the shipwrecks, the beatings, the, the 40 stripes minus one. You know, Paul knew that he deserved judgment but received that grace instead. And he understood the part that works played in his own salvation, which is why he diligently preached against them. He diligently preached against those works. He understood it was nothing but the grace of God in his own life. And he says, it was only by the grace of God I am what I am. In verse 10, his service was no doubt driven by the thought that his undeserved grace that was shown to him would not be wasted in his life. And I think that's a driving force that he must have had. He must not disappoint the one who had called him by his grace and given him life. He must not disappoint the anointed one, the Christ. He couldn't. He couldn't do that. And that's what he says. He says, His grace toward me did not prove vain. That was Paul's, Paul's message. Paul's view toward God and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. To me, that, that seems to be an ever-driving force that compelled him to remain faithful to his calling. He says, I labored even more than them all. Even more than all of them, I labored. Yet Paul still recognizes that it was not his labors done in his own strength, but that it was the grace of God with me. You know, we can do a lot of things in our own power, and, and we're commanded to walk in a manner pleasing to God. But as we studied last week and the week before, without the proper motivation, without the enabling power of God, it's, everything we'll do will amount to, to nothing. You know, if we read previously, if... if no matter how much strength you have or your incredible prayer life that you can move mountains or the wisest counsel, you can understand all mysteries. Without love, all that amounts to nothing in the kingdom of God. But Paul recognized it was the grace of God within me that, that does this. And then the last part here, he, he reminds Corinthians, the Corinthians that it doesn't matter from whom they heard the gospel, whether it was from he himself or was it maybe from the other apostles or maybe it was... His, the local teachers and, and, and the prophets that were there at the church at Corinth, it doesn't matter who brought the message because it's not the messenger that saves them. It's not the messenger that saves them. It's the power of the gospel that calls people to Christ. And Paul didn't want to take any of the credit for the Corinthians' redemption because that would mean that Christ would not receive the proper glory. The God-man behind the gospel the grace of God and their calling, the faith that they've been given. You know, all these things demonstrated that power of the cross. And the historical fact that Jesus Christ was born to a virgin, lived a sinless, perfect life, doing all that he should and nothing that he shouldn't, the crucifixion of that guiltless Savior for the sins of mankind and the, the suffering that he endured while remaining as harmless as a lamb. We see all that. We see the power of God displayed in His resurrection and His ascension to the right hand of the Father. These are the things that mattered. And, and when Paul talks about to the Corinthians, he talks about, I'm an apostle, but I'm, I'm least of all undeserving. It is the grace of God that works in me. That's what Paul is, is referencing. That's what Paul is talking about. So whether Paul delivered that message or somebody else, that was not what was important. What was important was that they heard and believed the gospel message, which included the resurrection of, of Jesus Christ. 
And as I mentioned earlier, the, the Corinthians, they did believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They had to because that's really one of the things that God implants within us is that, um, that belief in, in Scripture, that belief in, in God, that He gives us that faith to believe. He takes away that foolishness that we have had in the past that we can work our way to heaven. He takes that away and gives us that sound mind, that mind that discerns things. He, he gives us an enlightened mind along with our fleshly heart. So we'll see that even though they believed in that resurrection of Christ, they never really doubted you know, that. But Paul, it was their own bodily resurrection that Paul wanted to, to fortify in, in their minds. So and we'll, we're going to start, we'll start in that next week and we'll begin chapter 12. Be sure and read through chapter 15 this week. You've got time, right? Yes, everybody shake your head. Yes, I have time to read one chapter in the Bible, right? Okay. So, I ask you today, is the resurrection of Christ important? Yes. Do you believe that it actually happened in history? Yes, okay. If you do believe that, it's only because of the work of God in your heart that takes away those blinders. And we, what would we say to... We would say along with Paul, grace be to God for His unspeakable mercies to us to redeem us and to count us useful for the kingdom and to work through us. Remember Corinthians, we've been talking about spiritual gifts. God gives us all that gift just as He did to others. God didn't redeem you for no reason, but He redeemed us to work for the ministry, work for God, work for the local church, edify one another. Any questions? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for the redeeming work of of Jesus Christ on the cross. And we do thank you, Father, for the resurrection of Jesus Christ that uh, validated the payment for our sins, that validated his perfect sinless life, that validated that he fulfilled everything that was required for our salvation. Lord, we are truly unworthy. We can say with Paul, we are unworthy. We don't deserve um, the, the least blessings in this life. We don't deserve life itself, yet you have preserved us. You have redeemed us for a reason, for a purpose. I pray, Father, that you would give us that sense of of that calling, uh, whether in ministry or whether in our work, Lord, that we will continue to um, work for the things of God, that we would continue to exercise our spiritual gifts, that we would continue to serve you and walk in a manner worthy of our calling. The grace was not displayed to us in vain. We do pray for Patrick uh, in the message to come, Lord, that you would uh, that you would give him wisdom, that you would give him uh, um, ease of speech, that he might be able to communicate clearly, and that you would give us all here today listening ears and obedient hearts, that we would truly listen to the words of God, and that we would that it would change us and that it would make us more into the image of Christ. And we ask all these things.